Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. We're in the second chapter. Last week we read verses 14 to 18, but really didn't get to discuss them. So we'll start there, and let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to study your word once again and to ferret out these truths that you've given us and to uh, be beacons of light to those in a, in a doubting world and to show that uh, your love is, is uh, real and that uh, we are um, your disciples. We thank you again for Mark and his faithfulness in this study and bless this time together in Jesus' name. Hi, Mark. And howdy, Tom. Oh, wow. Well, this is getting real exciting here in the book of Acts. We just bear, we're in Acts chapter 2, and we've noted as way of introduction that this is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, and in many ways it's also a continuation of the Gospel of John, particularly regarding the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit and so on. Uh, Acts just picks right up where the Gospel of John leaves off, and Acts chapter 1 repeated the ascension or the final ascension of Christ there uh, and then they had uh, their waiting as they were told to do and and they appoint a replacement for Judas and then the second chapter and all these chapter divisions are just kind of artificial man-made insertions uh, put in at a much much later date as an aside but uh, the second chapter kicks off on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, and we have um, talked about the the Spirit coming in with the rushing of a mighty wind and with the appearance of tongues splitting apart like fire. So we have audio and we have video feed going on there in Jerusalem uh, as this is happening. Uh, all Christians receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but these are special gifts of the Spirit uh, that they had that uh, allowed them to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And and we talked about how that the Judean remnant was scattered all over the known world uh, and had been since really since 600 or more B.C., and very few of them had chosen to return to Judea. And so it's really just a remnant 
that are back in Judea and Galilee and, and the rest are dispersed throughout the world. And the second paragraph of chapter 2 recaps how all these uh, men rushed, and women too presumably, uh, rushed over to where this noise was coming from in this fire. And, and then it, there's a list of all of these nations, which includes uh, as far east as India, Persia, places like that, west to uh, Libya, North Africa, and all the way to Rome, to the northeast, a couple of spots in what's Turkey today, and so on. So um, pretty good cross-section of the Roman Empire, but they all heard the uh, voices coming in their uh, native country language. Uh, again, most of them probably spoke Aramaic also, you know, if they were in the habit of coming up to Jerusalem. So they're all uh, wandered there now. Just to recap the geography, there, there are only about three tombs inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and they were all down in the southeastern part of the city, which is down the hill from the Temple Mount. And they've excavated these. Now, they were all, they were desecrated, I'm sure, during the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And then uh, one of the Maccabees, when he besiege the city from the uh, <clears throat> Seleucid kings, he took the opportunity to loot David's tomb. And he was supposed to be a relative of David, so I haven't quite figured that one out. And then Herod the Great tried to also loot David's tomb, and he was prevented by what most people believe to be miraculous intervention. It's probably recorded in Josephus, but I haven't got that far reading Josephus, so I don't know the details. But the point is there's a lot of accounts that all place the tomb of David in the south part of the city, fairly close to the city wall. And I actually got to see the remnant of three burial caves. Most of them have been daylighted or blown out, but they, they still go back in the hill a little ways. And uh, they're very close to the wall. But the other thing that they're very close to is the Pool of Siloam. I think I mentioned this last week that the Pool of Siloam was recently discovered. It's not the one everybody thought it was since Queen Helena picked it out in the 4th century. This is a huge, huge gathering place that would hold hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. Uh, and the, the monumental staircase led from there up to the Temple Mount. And these people would bathe and could get a nice drink and sit in the shade there while they were waiting their turn to go up to the Temple Mount, which, as big as it was, could not accommodate all the pilgrims. So if this uh, this all fits, if the upper room where the apostles uh, were was built out over one of these three tombs down there, it would have only been about three blocks from the Pool of Siloam where all these people would be waiting, and so they would have easily been able to hear and see uh, the this the the wind and the, the fire and so on and so forth, and could have gathered there around the city. Um, it's a very steep area, and they build they build the houses kind of up on top of one another, and like the the backyard of one house is the roof of the house below it. And I actually got to be there and see all this a few years ago, so. I'm just telling you this to kind of get the picture right for, for what's going on here. But it would have made sense that these men would have gone up onto the roof of the building. 
all of the buildings there, all the houses at that time had flat roofs, and people lived on the roof pretty much in the summer because it was so hot to get uh, ventilation and so on. So anyway, if if he's standing up there, he can literally point to the site of the tomb of David as he's giving this discourse. And he's just two or three blocks from the Pool of Siloam, which will figure in prominently uh, later on in Acts chapter 2, as we hear that 3,000 people are immersed in water. And for years, people said, oh, that's impossible because the Pool of Siloam is only as big as a living room. But, well, it's not. It's it's huge. It's It was designed for thousands of people to be able to ceremonially bathe at the same time. So anyway, uh, it's all right together there in the south part of the city of David on the hill of Zion, which rises up to the Temple Mount and then continues on up a further ways above the Temple Mount, uh, the Dome of the Rock being there right now. And so Peter gets up and rebuts that these men are drunk, uh, as we talked about, and then he starts quoting uh, the prophet Joel. And I guess let's talk about the Tower of Babel before we go to the prophet Joel here. We're, we're probably not going to get too far in Acts, but there's some background information that's just amazingly fantastic here. Leslie reminded us about the Tower of Babel as we were closing last week. And my son came to visit a few days ago, and he brought a newly reprinted uh, book written in 1867. Its author is David Lipscomb, and the title is On Civil Government. Now, Lipscomb was a very prominent preacher and magazine editor in the Restoration Movement uh, in the 1800s. And uh, these are, this became the Churches of Christ and the Christian Churches and the Disciples of Christ. Three branches of that movement uh, remain today with many little subsects and divisions and so on. But uh, Lipscomb lived in Nashville, Tennessee, and he was very much against war. And he wrote a letter to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, basically explaining that the churches in central Tennessee were going to stay out of the war, that they were part of the kingdom of Christ, and uh, that the kingdoms of men could only wreak havoc and destruction upon one another. And then when the uh, Union conquered and occupied Tennessee, he wrote a similar letter to the occupation governor, Andrew Johnson. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, he became president after Lincoln. And basically saying the same thing, and, and he's probably, he's attributed with probably saving the lives of thousands and thousands of Christian men from the central Tennessee area. But anyway, this book is making the case that civil governments are inherently evil, and that all they are good for is endless war. So I know Chuck is going to want to get a copy of this book, <laughs> because he and David Lipscomb are truly brothers <laughs> in in thought, and uh, Lipscomb was absolutely on fire about the kingdom of God, which is being established right here in Acts chapter 2. But he's got some fascinating commentary on the Tower of Babel. And Acts chapter 2 is reversing the Tower of Babel. In uh, in Genesis uh, 10, we hear uh, in a genealogy of Ham, we read the following, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And this is uh, uh, present-day Iraq, or Mesopotamia. 
and this is the first recorded human government that's beyond a, a family unit. And they come to bad things very quickly, and they decided they could make themselves equal to God. And so they uh, they decided to build this tower up to heaven so they could, I guess, reach God and grab him by the ankle and pull him down to earth and thrash him. I don't know what they were thinking, but uh, they uh, they were extremely arrogant, and they were in rebellion against God. God called this Babel, which translates as confusion or strife, and Lipscomb writes, it introduced into the world the organized development and embodiment of the spirit of rebellion, strife, and confusion among men. God christened it Babel. It soon grew into a bloodthirsty, hectoring Babylon and subjugated the surrounding families, tribes, and kingdoms to its dominion and became the first universal empire of the earth. So he didn't think uh, much of it here. And uh, basically in this book, uh, Lipscomb makes the case that all civil governments are the spiritual descendants of Babylon. And he pretty much shatters the myth that there can be any such thing as a Christian nation. The only Christian nation is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, or as the prophets called it, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel which is what is happening here in Acts chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Any any comment on this about the, the Tower of Babel? Well, um, the, the contrast between the speaking of tongues and glorifying God at uh, Pentecost, whereas in, in the Babel uh, story, they were rising up against God or in defiance to God, and God smote them in they spoke different languages and scattered across the the globe, but they didn't want to at first until that happened and then with the Pentecost, it's God's initiating the tongues, but everybody can understand, and it gives glory to God so yes it's a it's like a complete reversal. Man reaching up, claiming to be equal to God in Babel. And here, God is reaching down to man and saying that he is going to dwell in man on the earth. So it's just the opposite. And instead of spreading them apart with confusion of languages, he's bringing them all together into the restored kingdom of Israel here. So it's it's... It's almost just a complete spiritual reversal of of Babel. And thank you again for bringing that up last week. Mark, excuse me, uh, does this Lipscomb make any discussion, have any discussion about the founding of America? Because that's a big popular thing today to talk about our Christian heritage and so forth. Does he talk about that in any way or see any difference in the founding of the United States? Well, I haven't got through the whole book yet, but... Uh, okay. Um, you know, it's written in the context of the complete and utter destruction of the South after the northern invasion and occupation. And so that's really, you know, pretty much on his mind. The the final chapter historically is in early church writings and history showing the views of the early Christians towards civil government. And that ends in about 1644 is the... Uh, 
the uh, last date that he mentions uh, this is having this is something to do with um yeah well the puritans blending church and state together and then using it to uh to persecute the baptists and so that's his last example but of course this would probably be used by the same people you're talking about um uh, I'll just go ahead and read it uh November 13 1644 a decree of the general court of massachusetts it is ordered and decreed that if any person or persons within this jurisdiction shall either openly condemn or oppose the baptizing of infants or go about secretly to seduce others from the approbation or use thereof or shall purposely depart the congregation at the administration of the ordinance or shall deny the ordinance of magistracy or the lawful right and authority to make war or to punish the outward breakers of the first table and shall appear to the court willfully and obstinately to continue there and after due time and means of convictions every such person or person shall be sentenced to banishment and yeah, it's referring to the 10 commandments so it it's basically binding the religion of the puritans on everyone in the colony and uh, punishing anyone that disagrees with them with uh, with banishment so he's pointing out the uh, you know the uh, the the necessity to completely separate church and state in in this book all right well let's uh, we we read a little bit peter starts quoting from the prophet joel and so i thought we should go back there and i may even give you some highlights uh, from cuz i found about 80 references in the prophets to the restoration of israel in the last days and uh i i shared this with my local church wednesday night and uh, no sunday afternoon and i started screaming i got so excited about it So hopefully I won't do that here. It's okay, Mark. A little screaming will be okay. But I really liked it. But uh, yeah. anyway, uh, man, it, the kingdom came with power, and this so refutes the basic tenet of dispensationalism and Zionism that the kingdom was deferred, you know, because of unforeseen difficulties. God failed in His plan to establish the kingdom. in the days of Christ and the apostles. Mark, uh, might be a might be a a, key, a good point for me to make a comment uh, being the official Schofield um watcher uh over these uh, chapters uh on page 1164 which is where you are and a reference to the verse you're about to read which is uh verse 14 Peter standing up to the uh, 11 and lifted up his voice and said ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem be it known unto you and hearken my words and to that the Scofield reference bible has a lengthy footnote in the 1967 edition which was greatly expanded there that that is essentially the argument for a physical state of Israel and a dual second coming in which they uh, attempt to say there were sort of two uses of of the word last days and uh, they make a very strong distinction there and make the effort to say that uh, that these chapters were all predicting a physical return of the state of Israel in the future do you want me to read any part of these notes or just make the observation that there is a, a powerful effort to sell uh this chapter that you're dealing with as uh, pointing out a physical return of a future 
physical state of Israel with God, of course, reappearing, Jesus, of course, reappearing at that time. Well, I'm looking at the 1908 version here, and it's uh, fairly short, but it's talk about Peter having to cover the objections of the Judeans because, uh, and of course he calls them Jews, the point of difficulty with the Jews was the apparent failure of the clear and repeated promise in the prophets of a regathered Israel established in their own land under their covenanted king. And this, and again, I found about 70 or 80 references to the ingathering of Israel, the reestablishment of Israel in the prophets, beginning in Isaiah and going all the way through to, to Malachi. Uh, they all refer to it, some of them over and over again, like Isaiah. And he gives three examples here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And he says, instead of explaining as Rome first taught, talking about the Catholic Church, followed by some Protestants, that the covenant promises were to be filled in the church in a spiritual sense, which is exactly what I'm saying, Peter shows from Psalm 16 that David himself understood that the dead and risen Christ would fulfill the covenant and sit on his throne. But, of course, Schofield conveniently fails to prove anything that, that this throne is literal and that the dead and risen Christ would have to be physically sitting in physical Jerusalem uh, to do this. He just states it as a fact without proving it. And what you've read there, Mark, clearly points out that way back in, in uh, 1908, Cyrus High Schofield was indeed laying the groundwork for what we know as modern dispensationalism. And then when you take the 1967 edition of the Bible, which, of course, was written after Schofield was 40 years dead, then you see how the Zionist movement has simply amplified on on that little statement that Schofield made and, um, and, and screamed at the top of its voice, it's coming, it's coming, the second coming, the, the, the return of Israel is in the future, and we're all waiting for it. And it actually condemns those who say otherwise. So the pattern was so clearly there in 1908, and it's just very much amplified on as we go along in subsequent ages right up through the present time. So well, it is, and this is the crux of our theological differences, the, exactly. res the nature of the restored Israel. That is the crux of the difference, and it takes you in two completely different directions. The, the great spiritual kingdom of God that David Lipscomb had a clear sight of and, uh, and, and accomplished so, such magnificent things in proclaiming, or, or an earthly kingdom with all of the same problems of every other earthly government and so on, uh, at least until the Messiah presumably comes and straightens it all out by physically sitting on the physical chair that David sat in, physical Jerusalem in physical uh, Judea. But, the, but again, this negates the clear words of Luke here in Acts when, when he says, well, Peter says in the last days that's not what joel said if we go back to joel chapter 2 verse 28 is where this passage begins and it says i shall it shall come to pass it doesn't say in the, in your last days it says it shall come to pass afterwards which is referring to the previous part of the book which is talking about a locust plague and then a great restoration of judah 
and that then you will know, then I, Yahweh, will appear in your midst, and my people shall never be put to shame. So after God appears in their midst, then you pick up the context in 2.28, that it shall come to pass afterward, in other words, after God has appeared in their midst, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Peter's just told us that this happened on the day of Pentecost, and Peter and or Luke understood that this was in the last days. And as we read last time, it, your old men will dream dreams, your young men see visions, in your, your servants, your handmaids, I'll pour up my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And I think we mentioned, uh, didn't we mention last time about uh, what happened on the day of the crucifixion with the sun turning Earthly. dark? And many people believe that the moon rose, you know, red that, that night. It would have been a full moon there on the Passover and that it probably rose looking like a blood moon uh, that night. And so they had just seen these signs and wonders. So th this is... This is where we have a parting of the ways with uh, Schofield and his minions is because the Bible tells us that this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. It, it wasn't deferred for 2,000 years or 3,000 years, that it was fulfilled uh, right there. And we can see clearly how all of these things uh, were fulfilled. And then he goes on, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those that escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the remnant those whom Yahweh does call. Now, I, Mount Zion is what the prophets call the restored Israel. I mean, this new temple that's going to be built is going to be built on Mount Zion, and the physical people who stayed on the physical Mount Zion in the first century, they did not survive. They were not delivered. They were utterly and completely and totally annihilated by the zealots, and then the Romans finished off any survivors uh, in A.D. 70. They were utterly wiped out. But those who called on the name of the Lord and came into the new heavenly Jerusalem, which Peter says, I mean, again, I don't know how they get by with this because Paul and Peter and all of them, they talk about the new heavenly Jerusalem. The, the people that came out of the old Jerusalem and went into the new heavenly Jerusalem were all spared. They knew what was coming and they fled Judea and crossed the Jordan River and got far, far away and, uh, Josephus, I think, even records that they they all survived. So anyway, it's it's pretty clear that Peter is quoting Joel. He's claiming that it is happening right then and there on the day of Pentecost, and that it involved the the last days. And here's what I wanted to continue to read after. Before you do, see, Mark, let me interject. Yeah, sure. To finish this thought that I raised. The Zionists have become incredibly bold, and in many places in the New Testament, they actually refute the the, the, the spoken language of of the of the apostles and of uh, of Paul himself uh, and of Jesus himself. And in this passage that you just made reference to, they they do that. They say in this 1967 
version, this Zionist version of the Scofield Reference Bible, Peter did not teach that the covenant and promises were to be filled, fulfilled in the church in the so-called, quote, spiritual, end quote, sense, but showed from Psalm 16 that David himself understood that the dead and risen Christ would fulfill the covenant and sit on his, David's, throne. Yeah, and again, but the problem is when you when you read, Peter is saying that Christ is risen and he is sitting on David's throne as he speaks there on the day of Pentecost. He's, he's, not, he's not talking about something that's going to happen 2,000 years in the future. He's claiming that it's all happened right there that Christ has ascended to the right hand of God and that he is sitting on David's throne as the ruler of God's people. And, and, we, all, and we all believe that, I think. Uh, and yet uh, these words absolutely, totally conflict with that. Dead on. They say Peter did not teach. So right. this is an incredible boldness that's taken place in this Zionist, Zionist tampering with our Bible that is just amazing. And, well, yeah, I mean, 16th Psalm says, I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. So he's he's sitting there uh, at the right hand of God. And, uh, I mean, I don't know why that's 2,000 years in the future in literal Jerusalem. It sounds to me like it's in heaven which is what Peter says over there in Acts chapter 2. Well, forgive me for taking so long, but I wanted to make sure we had that point that we clearly can see how this Zionist Bible refutes absolutely absolutely the essence of what we believe. Most oh, yeah, it, this is so important. Now, if we, it, where Peter leaves off quoting Joel, his audience, who had heard the prophets read every Saturday, since they were born, they would have known that the thought continued past where Peter left off quoting. It says, For behold, in those days, and in that time, I shall bring back the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all nations. I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will execute judgment upon them there for my people and for my heritage Israel whom they have scattered among the nations. They have parted my land. They have cast off from my people, etc., etc. So he's talking about this great judgment that's going to occur in those days and at that time. And he is, is then going to preserve his people. We skip ahead. Uh, this, this will be familiar to some of you listening. Multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth shall shake, but Yahweh will be a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am Yahweh your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall... No strangers pass through her anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains will drop down sweet wine, 
The hills will flow with milk, and the brooks of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain will come forth from the house of Yahweh, shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for Yahweh dwells in Zion. So, are we to believe that he's been dwelling there in Jerusalem in a Muslim, uh, it's not a mosque, but it's a, you know, it's a great holy place there, marking the spot where Muhammad uh, ascended to heaven. Has God been there, or has he been homeless for 2,000 years, awaiting for Zion to be rebuilt, for someone to demolish the uh, the Dome of the Rock and to rebuild the temple for him to go into? I mean, it just... It just, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. He's talking about the spiritual Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem, where he has been forever. And he has called everyone out of the old into the new. And yet you have to pay attention to the nuances of the words in the prophets here. Because Judah, yeah, go ahead. Including Old Testament and New Testament. Well, right, but uh, the terminology, just as we pointed out, the, the the confusion generated by the term Jew rather than the biblical term Judean, you, you can't interming, you can't use Israel and Judah uh, as synonyms, which so many people do. They, they have two different meanings. Uh, Judah was the remnant of Israel. Israel was utterly devastated by the Assyrian Empire and was scattered like seed among all the nations, according to the prophet Hosea, and uh, Jeremiah confirms that. And then Judah, a hundred years later, is taken and deported off to Babylon and scattered around the Babylonian Empire. And then after 70 years, they're allowed to come back, but only 3 or 4% come back. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe like 0.1% of the... Uh, Israelites from a hundred years earlier might have come back, uh, you know, with them. But but 99.5 percent of Israel was gone, never to return, and and 70 to 90 percent of Judah uh, never chose to return. So the Judeans who dwell in Judea and Galilee know that they are the remnants of Israel. They are a remnant of Israel. They are not Israel. If we if we look ahead in Peter's talk there in Acts chapter 2, we see that he's not addressing the men of Judea as the remnant of Israel, but rather he is, in verse 36 he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And see how that fits in with their question to Jesus before his final ascension, where they asked, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he had already taught them the spiritual nature of the kingdom. And and so they understand now, you see, that this isn't just the restoration of Judah to be an independent kingdom. This is something much, much greater This is the whole house of Israel coming back together. 
This is the promised regathering that Schofield alludes to that no student of the prophets can miss because it's absolutely pervasive. Uh, I, I think it would be um, appropriate for us, you know, just to glance over a few of these. Uh, any any comments here before I start reading a few of these prophecies? You said there were about 80 of them? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, just that I found uh, just skimming through here. Now, the book of Hosea, which we've already studied, um, just for re review, though, remember, in chapter 1, he pronounces that uh, Israel has basically become a harlot bride, and Hosea marries a prostitute uh, to symbolize this, and he, she bears a daughter, which God names uh, that that has not obtained mercy. Call her name that which has not obtained mercy, because I will have no more mercy upon Israel. I will no way pardon them. And then uh, she has a son, and God says, name him, lo, am I, which means not my people, because he is probably illegitimate. And so he's basically calling Israel illegitimate people that are not his children anymore. He says, call him, lo, am I, because you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And then, right after this, though, immediately... He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, notice the distinction, shall be gathered together. They shall appoint themselves one head. I wonder who that will be. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And Jezreel is the Hebrew word that means God's harvest, uh, roughly translated. So do you think, I mean, do you see anything in the physical history of Israel or Palestine that could be interpreted as the fulfillment of this promise in Hosea 1. But does it not scream out for a future restoration of the whole house of Israel? Because it's talking about Israel and Judah being joined together. Now, there's still some loose ends, but that... Anybody here? I he took a break. What happened? I don't know. He's still on... Uh, Mark, you still there? Your phone died? I hit the mute okay. button somehow. I'm sorry. What was the last thing? Oh, okay. <laughs> it was sitting in my lap, I guess I bent over on it. Uh, what was the last thing I said? Uh, I quoted Hosea 1, and I said that uh, uh, you heard me say that. The children of Judah and the yeah. children of Israel should be gathered together. Right. And uh, Jezreel, okay. And then, I, if, uh, okay, let's start here. So there's a few loose ends with this promise in Hosea 1 for a future regathering of all of Israel, but we have a lot of other passages to explain further details. We just jump over to Hosea 3, and there it says, For the children of Israel will abide many days without a king, without prince, and without sacrifice, without pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek 
Yahweh their God, and David their king, and they shall come with fear unto Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. So, again, our dispensational friends would say, well, see, this is all the years the Jews haven't had a temple. And these are not the last days of Israel. These are the last days of the church. But that's totally arbitrary. The last days of all of the Hebrew prophets were consistently, without exception, the last days of physical Israel. And, again, if you don't mingle Jew and Israelite together, you know, the the Israelites had been scattered since 600 and some odd B.C. without a king and without a temple and all of that. Uh, But, of course, the Jews had it. So if you don't note that distinction, you can be pulled into the dispensational trap and double talk. But here we're talking about the restoration of all of Israel, not just the remnant that was Judah. So, and David will be their king. And, and not even the dispensationalists think that the real physical David is going to be physically reincarnated to be the king. They know that this is figurative language speaking about Jesus Christ, who is the king in the place of David, the seed of David, who will rule over the restored Israel. But here, Hosea says it is in the last days. Peter has just told us that those last days are right then and there on the day of Pentecost. Um, another interesting chapter, we, we go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah was written right during a previous destruction of Jerusalem, but chapter 30 and 31 um, are talking about something uh, in the future. He says, uh, 30 verse 22, You shall be my people and I will be your God, just like Hosea did. He's just talked about they're going to go into captivity. They're going to be punished because they're sick and evil to the core. But then there's this promise of redemption. You will be my people and I will be your God. The the fierce anger of Yahweh will not return until he is executed, until he has performed all the intents of his heart. In the last days, you will understand it. At that time, says Yahweh, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So by, when Jeremiah wrote this, Israel, 90% of the descendants of Jacob or Israel had been gone, dispersed out of the land for a hundred years. But he's promising that in the last days, all of Israel would be restored to be the people of God. The people that were left of the sword found favor in the wilderness, um, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So in our, see, they're, they're kind of being preserved as they've intermingled with the Gentile nations. Uh, they've been uh, preserved. They couldn't hack it. As the people of God in God's own land, they failed miserably. But he says, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Again will I build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. Again you shall be adorned with your tabrets. You shall go forth in the dances of those who make merry. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit thereof. For there shall be a day that the watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall cry, Arise, let us go up to Zion unto Yahweh our God. And so 
Israel is to be restored. Now, the dispensationalists would love to say, see, this is fulfilled in the modern-day state of Israel. But, again, this is clearly to be in the last days, which is the last days of physical Israel. Uh, and, again, the people... The people that live over there have not yet gone up to uh, to the temple to Zion uh, to worship God. There's a tiny remnant of Orthodox Jews who do that, but uh, 90% of the people who live over there have no interest in those kind of things together. Um, continuing on, he says, For thus says Yahweh, Sing with gladness for Jacob, which is another name for Israel. Shout for the chief of the nations. Publish it, praise, and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. I will gather them from the uttermost parts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travails with child together. A great company shall return. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph, born in Egypt, and he, his descendants became the predominant tribe amongst the northern kingdom of Israel, and the prophets use Ephraim as a synonym for the northern peoples of Israel, the ones who are not Judah. And so this is clearly talking about a restoration of Israel that was not Judah. And again, the modern-day Jews are claiming to be Judah. But this is talking about something far beyond. This is, this is talking about gathering them from the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, Hear the word of Yahweh, you nations, declared in the isles far off. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. They shall come and sing in the height of Zion. They shall flow unto the goodness of Yahweh, etc., um, etc. Et so um, it, then it talks about uh, the voice of Ramah, weep, Rachel weep for children, which, is, which is, was fulfilled in the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem when Christ was born. This is all tied in to the first century. This is all tied in to the work of Christ and the apostles. This is the regathering of Israel. And Peter has just declared that this is a restoration of Israel and that Christ now rules on the throne of David. Now, there's, there's hundreds more, but I'm just going to, uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip all the way over to Micah chapter 4 because this one is is particularly enlightening. Micah 4. It, in the latter days it shall come to pass that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is not on top of the mountains. It's down below the crest of the mountains. And the, the city was even down below it. No one built a city on the top of a hill because it was too much of a security threat. Um, and, and you were exposed to the wind and so on. This is, this is talking about something more than just rebuilding uh, the temple. 
This is in the last days of physical Israel, which corresponds, of course, to when the physical temple conveniently was utterly destroyed. And the physical temple, remember, you could not go into it if you were a foreigner. But here, Micah says, many nations shall go and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. He, we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples, and he will decide concerning strong nations. Just what we read in Joel uh, chapter 3. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. None shall make them afraid, for the mouth of, Yah of the Yahweh of hosts has spoken it. All the peoples walk, every one in the name of his God. We will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, says Yahweh, I will assemble that which is lame. I will gather that which is driven away, that which I have afflicted. I will make that which was lame a remnant, and that which was cast off a strong nation. And Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And, of course, the dispensationalists think that the reign in Jerusalem is only going to be a thousand years. But the Bible tells us that the new reign from Zion has no end, that it goes on forever and ever. So which one are you going to believe? So anyway, this, this one is, is a particularly good one, but there's, there's many, many more. Uh, and, and again, right in this context is another prophecy of Bethlehem, uh, uh, where one will come forth who will be the ruler of Israel. And that's right there in Micah 5, right after Micah 4. So again, the context of all of these, the last days, is the coming forth of the Messiah. All of the Israelites and Judeans in the first century knew that the Messiah would come forth in their last days. Then shortly after that in Micah 5, he says, The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from God, as showers upon the grass that wait not for man, nor wait for the sons of men. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, uh, which is, again, the contrast between God's people and, and the people of the world. Um, but, but this jives with David Lipscomb's vision of a spiritual kingdom of God, uh, but it certainly doesn't jive with the restored physical country of Israel because uh, what would happen to them if they uh, unilaterally disarmed and uh, and beat all their swords into plowshares um, I don't think it would quite work out too good I don't think they're quite ready to uh, melt down their atomic weapons are they Mark? Right, no exactly my point so we don't see this being fulfilled in the modern day state of Israel but we do see this being fulfilled in the ingathering of Israel, where the, the, the impure, the Gentile, the lame, the leper, the blind, all are welcomed into God's kingdom. And this ties in to all of Jesus' parables about the wedding feast. You know, the great feast is prepared, and the family is invited. And the family is, is Judah and physical Israel. And they're too busy to come. They don't want anything to do with it. And so the king sends his servants out, to the byways and 
and drags up people off the street to come to his great wedding feast because the family is not interested in it. So all of these pictures fit beautifully to a, an in, a restoration of Israel in which the Gentile nations have been adopted in uh, because of the, the physical children of Israel were scattered like seed among the Gentile nations and allowed to, to stay there 600 years so that they're all intermingled. And so now everyone of every nation on planet Earth can come into the newly restored Israel. And, and Paul talks about this in Romans and probably in Galatians too, but he talks about how the, the old olive tree of Israel, it was, was sick and corrupt and didn't bear fruit. It was chopped down and burned, and the, a wild olive tree was grafted into the root. And these are the Gentile Christians who are being uh, gathered into the kingdom of God in those days. And Paul goes into great detail, uh, you know, to describe all of this. But he's telling them, don't, you know, the few, the few physical Israelites who are with us that are still tied into the root, you know, we should honor and respect them. But, uh, you know, but the bulk of them have been cast off and will be burned with fire. So it, it all fits perfectly together, but... Uh, it doesn't fit too well with the dispensationalist uh, version of events. Well, thank you, Mark. That was a excellent, eye-opening uh, lesson that uh, gives us a lot of food for thought. Look forward to continuing on next week. Okay, now, I, I where did we read down to? What was the last? We didn't. <laughs> we didn't. all intro. Well, we're still right where we're. Yeah, we never read. We never read the night in Acts because we just we're adding to. Well, no, you you read um, like fourteen. I thought we read a little bit. Uh, Do we get? I reviewed. Yeah, what we read last time, but uh, fourteen to eighteen. Okay. You said yeah, we were ready to start at nineteen. Well, the paragraph break. Oh, I'm in the wrong book. No wonder. Ah. Okay. okay. Back to Acts here. Um, I can read it over next week, whatever, so they can be. All right. Yeah, okay, we should, give me we should, give me some help here on how I should word this uh, the the uh, description of our study tonight. I'm I'm uh, my brain is dead right uh, now. From Babylon to um, Pentecost. Well, that, well, I would just say uh, the day of Pentecost, the uh, the reversal of Babel. This is too wordy, and the. And the rest. No, I'm not going to make it the title. I mean, I, I can, you know, the title is just Acts, but I, I'm, I'm making a brief description. So oh. the, the day God, of Pentecost. God reverses the Tower of Babel, and the kingdom of Israel is announced as restored. Uh, well, that's too, yeah, yeah, that's too wordy episode. And you talked no, about. No, 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 not, not wordy. I, that's not wordy. I, I'm, this is not the title. So, I mean, I, did, I'm, I need a description, actually. Uh, you talked about the Pool of Siloam, too. Yeah, okay, but no, the God uh, reverses the Tower of Babel, and and what was the other? What was the... Um... Pentecost. Oh, and... Now, we haven't really talked about the throne yet, so... Um, okay. The last days, the last... Yeah, yeah, that's it, okay. The Tower of Babel is reversed, and the last days of Israel are announced. Okay, that's good. 
Good. That's good. And we should really wow. kind of review 17 through 21, which is Joel chapter 2, or Joel and 3, but uh, we'll really pick up in 22. Okay. Good. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.